Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. I'm your host, Sandy. Welcome aboard. I'm recording from a boat, which is where I currently live with my family. It's a bit rollier than normal today, which means a bit more noise, but I really wanted to get this out to you. Today, I want to take you with me to California. California accounts for 90% of the wine produced in the U.S. This podcast pairs well with a nice Cabernet Sauvignon. Pour yourself a glass or your favorite grape juice and join me in learning something a little bit more morbid about the Sunshine State. An article by the Reno Gazette Journal claims that around the late 1800s, Lake Tahoe was essentially a dumping ground for Chinese railroad workers' bodies. Instead of paying them their due wages, they would be thrown into the lake by the hundreds while still alive. They were tied up in big groups and weighed down to sink to the bottom. In the mid-1900s, the mob used the lake too. They would put cement blocks on the feet of their victims and let them sink. There's no exact number of bodies in the bottom of the lake, but locals and experts estimate that over 200 bodies are still preserved down below because of the cold temperature. This reminds me of Skeleton Lake in India that we talked about in the last episode. Unlike the last episode, a snake wasn't used as a murder weapon in today's case, but mustachioed duct tape was. At 1.30 in the morning on November 30, 2012, Harinder Kumra called the San Jose police to tell them that she and her husband Ravi had been beaten and their home had been ransacked. Her husband was tied up somewhere in the house and she thought he was dead. When police arrived at the 7,000 square foot mansion, they found Ravi Kumra's lifeless body. Harinder told them that she had gone to bed around 10 p.m. After she had fallen asleep, she awoke to a knock on the master bedroom door and someone entered the room. The intruder climbed onto the bed with a cell phone in his hand, using it as a flashlight. She screamed for her husband and then she was hit across the face with something hard. This cut her lip. The man then told her to stop screaming and to walk with him into the kitchen if she wanted to see her husband. She remembers being given a piece of cloth to wipe the blood from her face. She walked into the kitchen where she saw her husband. His back was to her, but she saw someone with a hand on his back trying to push him down. She noticed that his hands had been tied and that he was struggling to free himself. Ravi was standing and was struggling to keep his composure. Harinder saw his desperation and heard him say, Please help me. She said that she saw a couple of men beating him and then he was finally forced down to the floor. She begged the men not to tie him up. She warned them that Ravi was a heart patient and could die, but the men didn't listen. She watched as the intruders pushed his face down into the ground. Someone wrapped tape over his eyes and mouth, and then they did the same to her. They asked her to get down on the floor and then tied her legs up with a blanket. Harinder told the police that when she tried to move her hands to relieve pressure, someone hit her. This happened once on her leg and once on her hands. At another point, someone tried to remove bracelets from her wrist, which hurt her so badly that she took them off herself and handed them over. The men asked her where her safe and money was, and she told them that the money, jewelry, and other valuables were kept in the master bedroom. One of the men was tasked with watching over the victims while others searched the house. After what seemed like an hour or two, she told the man sitting in a chair beside her that she hadn't heard her husband moving. The man got up telling her he would take a look at Ravi. He then came back and told her not to worry and that they would call 911 if it was needed. 
Based on the voices she heard, she wasn't sure if the man who stayed with her was the same man who struck her on the face, but she believed she heard the voices of two or three different people roaming around the house. Sometime later, a man told her that they'd be leaving soon and that she shouldn't move. He never came back. Eventually, she freed her legs, got up, and tried to call for help, but the first phone she tried wasn't working. It had been broken. She tried again and again until she finally found one that worked. She dialed 911, asking for help, and told the dispatcher that she believed her husband was dead. Sergeant Aaron Lunsford of the Los Gatos Monte Sereno Police Department was the lead investigator. He served 15 of his professional years as a police officer at Los Gatos. He rose through the ranks and was working in the detective bureau, but most of his cases were property crimes. Los Gatos is a wealthy bedroom community in Silicon Valley and averages a homicide only once every three or four years. Monte Sereno, where the Kumra house was located, hadn't had a homicide in roughly 20 years. When he arrived at the home, he spotted police cars clustered around a broken iron gate and an ambulance flashed quietly in the driveway. Beyond that was the Kumra mansion. The perpetrators that ransacked the home left with more than $100,000 in cash and jewelry. The on-scene supervisor walked Lunsford through the house. Dressers had been emptied, files dumped, and a cell phone was found dropped into a dirtied toilet. The refrigerator kept beeping every 10 seconds, announcing that its doors were ajar. Ravi's body was heavy-set and disheveled. It was found on the floor in the kitchen. His eyes were still blindfolded, and his mouth was covered in duct tape with a pattern of mustaches on it. His hands and legs had been bound together, and he'd been hogtied. An officer noted that the tape had been wrapped around Ravi's head several times. It covered his mouth almost up to his nasal passage. The first responding officer had tried to remove the tape from around his mouth in an effort to clear the airway, and then he rolled Ravi over onto his back. At first glance, they believed he had died from asphyxiation. It was also noted that an empty cardboard table and a pair of tan pants with a piece of duct tape on them that matched the duct tape on Ravi's face was found on a nearby family room table. The interior of that large house had been thoroughly ransacked. What was strange was that there were no signs of forced entry. A door must have been left open, but that's not too surprising since Ravi and Harender were home at the time. Police reported that a number of latex gloves had been found in the kitchen sink, and other latex gloves were found in the kitchen cabinets and drawers. They discovered yet another and an empty latex glove box on the bank alongside the road adjacent to the house's fence. An investigator from the coroner's office transported Ravi's body. Detective Lunsford followed her to the morgue for the autopsy. The doctor undressed Ravi, taking time to carefully scrape and cut his fingernails in case there might be evidence under them. Upon arrival at the mansion, Detective Lunsford had recognized Ravi. He was a wealthy businessman who had once owned part of a local concert venue. Lunsford had even been to the Kumra mansion on official business a couple of times. He had worked a couple of family dispute calls that never amounted to anything other than people just arguing. In the following days, as Lunsford interviewed people who knew the Kumras, he learned a lot about Ravi. Ravi had some enemies. He filed for divorce around 2006, after more than 30 years of marriage, but he and Harinder still lived together. The stories he heard from family and friends and co-workers began to paint a picture of a wealthy and ruthless businessman 
who had been accused of nefarious business dealings and who lived a sordid and debaucherous lifestyle. A businessman that used to work with Ravi made a statement in court that the divorce proceedings between Ravi and his wife were a sham. At the time, Ravi believed that a pending lawsuit against Ravi's business might strip him of millions. Because of this, Ravi orchestrated the divorce as a way to shelter his assets. Ravi was worried because evidence was coming out that for years he had been writing millions of dollars in checks directly from Kankakee Cellular of Illinois. This was a company he managed, but he was using the funds from his business to pay for escort services, sex workers, condos for his female companions, and other personal finances. In response to these accusations, Kumar denied that his divorce was a sham and instead accused two of his co-workers of embezzling money from him. The case had eventually been dismissed, but the two businessmen were still upset. They didn't like Ravi and considered him an enemy. One of the two men said, Ravi has never treated anyone fairly in his life except for his whores. As officers were working the case, the crime scene investigators were working on their end. DNA analysts were able to detect suspect DNA under Ravi's nails. There was some on gloves, and there was also DNA on some of the tape that was used to bind Ravi. The head investigator ran the DNA profiles through the state database of convicted felons, and he got three hits, all from the Bay Area. Their names were D'Angelo Austin, who was 22 years old. His DNA was found on the duct tape. Xavier Garcia was 21 years old. His DNA was found on the gloves, and on the fingernail clippings, was the DNA of 26-year-old Lucas Anderson. Within weeks of the DNA hits, plenty of corroborating evidence implicating Austin and Garcia was found. Both of them were from Oakland, and a warrant for their cell phone records showed that they had pinged towers near Monte Sereno the night of the homicide. Police records also showed that Austin belonged in a gang that had been linked to a series of home burglaries. Most damning of all, a sex worker named Katrina Fritz had been involved with Ravi for 12 years. Police had even found that her cell phone had been backed up on Ravi's personal computer. Connecting Lucas Anderson to the crime proved trickier. Although his DNA was under Ravi's fingernails, there were no phone records showing that he had traveled to Monte Sereno that night. Lunsford knew there had to be something that tied him to the robbery, so he worked hard to figure out the connection. Anderson wasn't associated with the robbery gang, but one thing on his rap sheet drew Lunsford's attention. It was a felony residential burglary. It took time and a lot of hard work, but eventually Lunsford found a link to one of the other men involved in the Kumra robbery and murder. A year earlier, Anderson had been locked up in the same jail as a friend of Austin's. The man's name was Sean Hampton, and he had worn an ankle monitor as part of the conditions of his parole. It showed that two days before the crime, he had driven to San Jose. He made a couple of stops downtown, right near Anderson's territory. At this point, things began to crystallize for Lunsford. He believed that Austin was planning the break-in and wanted local help who was experienced in burglary. So Hampton hooked him up with his jail buddy, Lucas Anderson. Anderson had recently landed back in jail after violating his probation on a prior burglary charge. So Detective Lunsford visited him there to do the interrogation. They taped the interview. Lunsford asks Anderson, does this guy look familiar to you? What about this lady? As he laid out pictures of the victims on the interview table. I don't know, man, was Anderson's reply. Lunsford then pulled out a picture of Anderson's mother. 
All right, what about this lady? I don't want to hear that you don't know who she is. Anderson met Lunsford's sarcasm with silence. Lunsford then set down a letter from the state of California showing the database match between Anderson's DNA and the profile found under Ravi's fingernails. Is this starting to ring some bells? Lunsford asked. When they asked Anderson what really happened, his reply was, I don't know what you're talking about, sir. Lunsford was beginning to get angry, saying, You won't even look at the pictures. The only picture you took a good look at was your mom. Lucas Anderson was then charged with the murder of Ravi Kumra. Over the next several months, Lunsford investigated the case more deeply. He arrested D'Angelo Austin and Xavier Garcia based on the DNA evidence. Harinder Kumar was able to identify Austin in a photo lineup. When the men's phones were confiscated and studied, Lunsford slowly began to piece together what had happened that night, but some big pieces of the puzzle were still missing. When interviewed, the men told Lunsford that the two of them and a man named Marcellus Drummond had entered the home and robbed it. They tied Ravi up, but they didn't mean to kill him. They implicated Austin's sister as being the person to provide a layout of the home. She had been Ravi's mistress, after all. This was enough to arrest her and charge her with murder and robbery for her involvement in the crime. A couple months later, she entered into a plea agreement with the district attorney. The attorney's office agreed to dismiss the murder charge against her in exchange for her cooperation and testimony against her brother and his friends. She said her motive for informing on her brother was to be with her eight-year-old daughter and to resume taking care of her older brother, who had Down syndrome. She admitted that Kumra had been generous, pleasant, and gentle with her, and she felt bad that he had died. She brought the whole story together. She described growing up in a world that was far outside the norm. It was a world where crime is king. She became a prostitute at the age of 13 when she exchanged sex for rent so that her mother and brothers would have a place to live. At around 19 years old, she met Ravi, who had become a customer of hers. He paid her and at least four other sex workers in cash and jewelry. He also bought her one car after another, downgrading her to a Ford Escort after the first two cars were towed because they were unlicensed and she had sold a third. She said Ravi had fathered at least two children with the other girls. He told her that he wanted her to have his child also. At some point, she got pregnant, telling him it was his baby, even though it wasn't. She thought maybe he would buy her a house and take care of her for the rest of his life. That plan changed, and she agreed to have an abortion when Ravi told her money was tight because of the 2008 economic downturn. Between 1999 and 2011, Fritz visited Ravi over a hundred times at his house, which he shared with his wife. She came and went on a regular basis. Ravi compensated her well for her companionship, giving her hundreds of thousands of dollars and several cars over the years. Fritz had even been allowed to bring her brother Austin to the mansion two or three times between 2003 and 2008, just to hang out. Fritz was familiar with the layout of the house and knew that the Kumras typically left the doors unlocked. She last saw Ravi about one year before the robbery. Shortly after Thanksgiving in 2012, Austin called his sister to ask her if she was still involved with Ravi and whether he had any money and jewelry at the mansion. Austin said that he was thinking of going there, which Fritz understood to mean that Austin was contemplating robbing the place. Fritz told Austin not to commit the robbery, but Austin convinced her by saying something like, Come on, it's okay, I know what I'm doing. It doesn't seem to me like it took much convincing. 
Fritz then offered to call or visit Ravi to get him out of the house, but Austin told her not to do that because Ravi would expect her involvement given the recent lack of contact. Later, in November, Austin called Fritz from Monte Sereno and asked for directions to the home. That afternoon, he surveyed the house and called to tell her that he saw lots of cars there. Cell phone records confirmed that Austin's phone was in the vicinity of the Kumar home on the early afternoon of November 29th. Later that day, Austin called again, asking for a drawing of the home's layout. They met to exchange the map. There, she spoke with her brother and the man named Marcellus Drummer. They went their separate ways, but later that day, they all planned to stay at a local hotel. As she entered the elevator that day, she saw her brother, drummer, and a third man exiting the elevator. She didn't recognize the man and didn't really take a good look at him, but described him as a shorter black man. She couldn't say with certainty whether the third man was Xavier Garcia. Later that day, after 10 p.m., Austin called Fritz to tell her that she was on the way to the Kumra house. He called again later to tell her that he was watching Ravi from outside. Ravi had been drinking alcohol and that the men were about ready to enter the home. She reminded him not to do too much to Ravi, to be careful, and to stop calling her phone. The men then entered the home, commencing the murder and robbery. There was only one problem with her story, and it was a big one. There was no mention of Lucas Anderson. Why were they protecting him? His DNA was found under Ravi's fingernails, and in all the years that Lunsford had worked cases, he had never seen DNA be wrong. But none of the people who were talking in the case were talking about Lucas Anderson. Lucas was a 26-year-old homeless alcoholic with a long rap sheet who spent his day hustling for change in downtown San Jose. He couldn't really defend himself on the night in question because he couldn't remember the night. As he looked at the DNA results, he tried to make sense of a crime that he had no memory of committing. He said to his lawyer, Nah, 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 I don't do things like that but maybe I did. His lawyer said, Lucas, shut up. Let's just hit the pause button until we work through the evidence to see what really happened. As part of the research process, the defense investigator pulled everything pertinent to Anderson's medical history, including his mental health, just in case they needed to ask for leniency during sentencing. Lucas's lawyer suspected Anderson could be a candidate for such leniency. He spent much of his childhood homeless and in early adulthood he was diagnosed with mental health disorder and diabetes. He had developed an overwhelming alcohol addiction. One day, while drunk, he stepped off a curb and into the path of a moving truck. He survived, but his memory was never quite right again. He lost track of days, sometimes several in a row. Now, I'm not saying his life was bleak. He made friends easily, and he had a sly sense of humor and dimples that couldn't be missed. His friends, many who lived on the streets beside him, looked after him, as did some of the local downtown shopkeepers. Lucas' lawyer and her investigator spoke to many of his friends, and they all shook their heads saying that he was indeed a drunk, but he was a sweet man and wasn't a killer. His rap sheet backed up these sentiments. It was filled with petty crimes, drunk in public, riding a bike under the influence, and probation violations. But the only serious conviction was a residential burglary, and it even didn't seem so bad, once the facts were understood. According to the police report, Anderson had drunkenly broken into the front window of a home and tried to crawl through. The horrified resident had actually pushed him back out with a towel and blankets. They then called the police, and police found him a few minutes later standing on the sidewalk, dazed and bleeding. Although nothing had been stolen, he 
had been charged with a felony and pleaded no contest. That's when his DNA had been added to the state criminal database. Medical records proved Anderson was also a regular in the county hospitals. Recently, he had been taken by ambulance to Valley Medical Center, where he was declared inebriated nearly to the point of unconsciousness. His blood alcohol test indicated that he had consumed the equivalent of 21 beers, but it may have been even more since he was a chronic drinker. He spent the night detoxing, and the next morning he was discharged somewhat more sober. The date on the record was November 29th, and if that record was right, Lucas Anderson had been in the hospital precisely as Ravi Kumra was dying, suffocating under duct tape, miles away. At this moment, his attorney turns to the investigator who's staring back at her. She was used to alibis being partial and difficult to prove, but this forgotten alibi was signed by hospital staff. More than anything, she said that she felt terrified to know that she had a factually innocent client sitting in jail facing the death penalty, and that feeling was very scary. She didn't want to make any mistakes. She knew Lunsford and the prosecutors would try to find holes in the evidence. Perhaps the date on the record was wrong, or someone had stolen his ID, or there was more than one Lucas Anderson. So she and the investigator systematically traced his day. Anderson only had patchy recollections of the night in question, but they found a record that a 7-Eleven clerk called the authorities at 7.45, complaining that Anderson was panhandling. He moved on before the police arrived. He then traveled several blocks to the east to the S&S market where a clerk there told the lawyers that Anderson had sat down in front of his store at about 8.15. He was already drunk and getting drunker. A few hours later, he wandered into a store and collapsed in the aisle. This is when the clerk at the store called the authorities. The police were the first to arrive, followed by a truck from the San Jose Fire Department. A paramedic with the fire department told Anderson's lawyer that he had picked Anderson up while drunk so often that he knew his birthday by heart. Two more paramedics arrived with an ambulance. They placed Anderson onto a stretcher and took him to the hospital. According to his medical records, he was admitted at 10.45 p.m. The doctor who treated Anderson said that he remained in his bed throughout the night. Harinder Kumra said that the men who entered her and Ravi's house came into the house sometime between 11.30 and 1.30 a.m. It was clear that Anderson couldn't have done what he was charged with doing. Anderson's lawyer began to try and find out how Ravi and Lucas crossed paths earlier in the day, but she couldn't find a link. It was Detective Lunsford who figured it out in the end. He was reviewing Anderson's medical records and paused on one of the names of the paramedics who picked up Anderson from the sidewalk outside the S&S market. He had seen the name before. He then pulled up Ravi's case files, and sure enough, their names were there again. Three hours after picking up Anderson, the two paramedics had responded to the Kumra mansion, where they checked for vital signs. The prosecutors and police agree that somehow the paramedics must have moved Anderson's DNA from San Jacinto to Monte Serrano. The DA postulated that perhaps the pulse oximeter that was placed over both patients' fingers may have been the culprit. Others believed it could have been their uniforms or other pieces of equipment. It will likely never be known for sure. A spokesman for the company that the paramedics worked for said the company had high sanitation standards and required paramedics to change gloves and sanitize their vehicles. 
The truth is that touch DNA moves so quickly, it could have come from almost anywhere. A DNA experiment unrelated to this case was done where volunteers sat at a table and shared a jug of juice. After 20 minutes of chatting and sipping, swabs were taken from their hands, the chairs, the table, the jug, and the juice glasses. It was tested for genetic material. Although the volunteers never touched each other, 50% wound up with another person's DNA on their hands. There was also foreign DNA. Five profiles didn't match any of the juice drinkers or the staff during the experiment. The foreign DNA turned up on about half of the chairs and glasses and was all over the participants as well as on the table. The only explanation was the participants unknowingly brought the DNA with them. Perhaps from someone they kissed this morning or the stranger with whom they shared their bus grip, or the waitress who handed them their coffee. We leave a trail of DNA wherever we go. According to an article I read from Frontline in partnership with the Marshall Project, there are now some small studies explaining how DNA moves. If a man shakes someone's hand and then uses the restroom, the second man's DNA might wind up on the first man's penis. If someone drags another person by the ankles, the dragger's profile clearly shows up approximately 40% of the time. Of most relevance to Lucas Anderson, guess how many of us walk around with traces of other people's DNA on our fingernails? Approximately one person in every five. Traditional police work would never have steered police to Anderson, but the DNA hit led them to look for other evidence to confirm his guilt. It wasn't malicious intent, but it was a confirmation bias. They got the DNA hit and tried to find a story that fit Lucas Anderson. If the case had gone to trial, the jury probably would have convicted him. Most jurors rate DNA evidence as 95% accurate. Consider a case in which a man is accused of sexually assaulting his stepdaughter. He might look guilty when his DNA and a fragment of sperm is found in her underwear. But jurors might give the defense more credit if a forensic scientist familiarizes them with a 2016 Canadian study that showed that a father's DNA is frequently found on their daughter's clean underwear. Occasionally even fragments of sperm land there too, because it migrates there in the laundry. Luckily, Lucas Anderson was able to prove he wasn't on the scene, but he still spent five months in jail for a crime he didn't commit. Investigator Lunsford received accolades for his detective work in the Coomer case, and he was promoted. But Lunsford said, my perspective on DNA has changed forever. There's no piece of evidence or science which is absolutely perfect, but DNA is the closest thing that we have, so let's not discount it. Let's just be very careful that we don't close our minds completely off to other possibilities. After he was released, Lucas Anderson returned to the streets, and, as is typical in cases where people are wrongly implicated in a crime, he received no compensation for his time in jail. He has continued to struggle with alcohol, but has stayed out of major legal trouble since that arrest. Anderson feels he's not the only person to be locked up because of DNA transfer. He considers himself blessed to be free and felt that being accused of murder was gut-wrenching. It pained him even more that he questioned his own innocence, even though he said, deep down, I knew I didn't do it. Before they were arrested, both Drummer and Austin had marveled that police had arrested another prostitute who inadvertently posted pictures of the Kumra home online right after the murder, and a homeless alcoholic. They expressed relief that it wasn't them behind bars. 
Thank goodness the charges were dropped against that prostitute, Raven Dixon, and Lucas Anderson, and both were released from jail. Austin and Garcia were convicted of first-degree murder, robbery in an inhabited dwelling, criminal threats, and two counts of false imprisonment. Austin was additionally convicted of assault with a deadly weapon for beating Kumra's wife during the encounter. Austin, the ringleader, faced a mandatory sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole, and Garcia faced a mandatory sentence of 25 years to life in prison. In December of 2014, Marcellus Drummer was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for his role in Kumra's murder. Katrina Fritz pleaded guilty to robbery, false imprisonment, and gang enhancements for maximum sentence of 17 years in prison in exchange for her testimony against the three other defendants. After the murder of Ravi Kumra, his family was reeling and began mourning his loss. Unfortunately, they were hit with another unexpected blow. His family members felt like victims again because the other sex workers began to fleece their family's estate. Just a few days after his funeral, people were making claims on his estate by claiming to be the mothers of his children. It was later discovered that at least two of the children were indeed his, and his family feared that there were more women waiting in the wings. The mother of the two girls was seeking half of Kumra's estate. She had been living quietly halfway across the country for a number of years, but had been supported by monthly payments from Ravi. Although he was technically divorced from his wife, and she knew of his womanizing, few others in the family, including Kumra's two grown daughters, knew of his penchant for sex workers, or the claims that he fathered illegitimate children. Even with these surprises, Harindar is still missing her best friend, and the Kumra daughters miss their father. Thanks so much for joining me listening to today's case. If you like what you heard, please give me a good rating and review. Maybe share this episode with a friend. I've got some special thank yous I'd like to give today. The first one is to April, who says, uh, well-researched and narrated. Certainly learned a lot about customs and cultures, and yes, a lot about snakes and their habits. Yes, I guess more knowledge of any kind is good. Keep it up, Sandy. Five stars. Thank you, April. I'd also like to thank Gloria Ann, who says... Great podcast. Love your voice. Very informative and fascinating. I'm hooked. Good job. Thank you very much, Gloria Ann. And last, we have a rating, a three-star rating from DCA6457. He or she says, yikes, I listened to the George Smith cruise ship death episode. It was fine, but the host needs to brush up on her vocabulary if she's going to be discussing crime. Indictment is not pronounced indictment. Oops. Did I do that? Thanks for the constructive criticism. I feel like I have the best listeners in the world, so thank you so much for tuning in this week, and I hope you come back next week. To all of you, I'd like to wish you fair winds and following seas.